Psalm 80. We're going to be at Psalm. I, again, Pastor Mike is sorry he couldn't be here today. He's, he's not feeling well, so just continue to pray for him. <clears throat> I also have um, a bit of a, a cold, so the Holy Spirit and Ricola cough drops are going to get me through this. So see me pause for a minute. Just give me a second. I'll catch my second wind and we'll go. Um, but we're going to be in Psalm 80 today. I, uh, I'm, I'm like Pastor Mike. I'm, I'm an expository teacher and preacher. I love going through books of the Bible verse by verse. But given that I occasionally don't get to stand before you that often, um, I love to go to the book of Psalm when I have a chance to just kind of do one sermon here and there. Because Psalm is like, a, it's like an endless treasure trove that the Lord has given us. And the deeper you go into it, the more you find. Uh, the deeper you mine it, <clears throat> the more gems there are. And so it's no different with today's Psalm and Psalm 80. So I just, I love this Psalm and I hope to bring out a few things that um, we can all benefit from today um, as we read this. So I'm just going to begin. We're just going to read. If you'll open your copy of God's word to Psalm 80, I'm going to read all 19 verses and then we will go from there. Thank you for being with us today. Verse one, give us, give ear, O shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who are enthroned upon the cherubim, shine forth. Before Ephraim and Benjamin and Manasseh, stir up your might and come to save us. Restore us, O God, let your face shine that we may be saved. O Lord God of hosts, how long will you be angry with your people's prayers? You have fed them with the bread of tears and given them tears to drink in full measure. You've made us an object of contention for our neighbors and our enemies laugh among themselves. Restore us, O God of hosts, let your face shine that we may be saved. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the ground for it. It took deep root and it filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade and the mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea and its shoots to the river. Why then have you broken down its walls so that all who pass along the way pluck its fruit? The boar from the forest ravages it and all that move in the field feed on it. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see, have regard for this vine. The stock that your right hand planted and for the son of man whom you made strong for yourself. You have burned it with fire. They have cut it down. May they perish at the rebuke of your face, but let your hand be on the man of your right hand, the son of man whom you have made strong for yourself. Then we shall not turn back from you. Give us life and we will call upon your name. Restore us, O God, O Lord God of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. That's the reading of God's word this morning. A major uh, focal truth that I want to hit on today as as we look through this passage, as we go through it together, uh, a major theme that kind of hangs over everything this morning is the truth that God is our great shepherd who delights in restoring his people from sin. And you could even add to that, not only does God delight in restoring his people from sin, but the means by which he does that is by shining his face upon his people. And so we'll break that down. A key passage that you see repeated over and over again, uh, three times specifically in this passage, verse three, verse seven, verse 19, restore us. Oh God, let your face shine that we may be saved. So we're going to zero in on that. And hang on that this morning as we go through this psalm. And I've also got three points that I want to share with you. Three points. He restores because of who he is. So we're going to learn about God restoring us because that's in his nature. He restores us from who we are. 
and he restores us through his son. And I'm going to go ahead and put a cough drop in because I'm going to already feel the stretch coming. So here we go. Um, <clears throat> so these, these three points are going to hang. Everything is going to point back to the fact that God is a shepherd who delights in restoring his people. One of my favorite designations for God in the Psalms is when they refer to him as the lifter of our heads. Psalm 3.3 says, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. That's a very glorious thing for us to know. God knows <coughs> that what we need most is to glimpse him for who he truly is. And in seeing that, we will see ourselves for who we truly are. He is a God who delights in the gaze of his people. And what's more, he delights in turning the downcast gaze of sinners towards him so that they might be overwhelmed by his majesty and that we might run to him. That's what you see in this psalm. <clears throat> he delights in being seen by those most unworthy of seeing him. So in Psalm 80, we see this repeated refrain, asking God to restore his people of having him turn their eyes towards him. And in this psalm, <clears throat> we'll explore how God as shepherd, how he directs the gaze of his people unto him so that they might be saved. But before we dive in, there's a little bit of historical background here. Every psalm, there's, so many, there's 150 total written over a period of time in the history of Israel. <clears throat> and the introductory comments of this psalm, which we should never gloss over, introductory comments to a psalm. The introductory comments to this psalm say that it's a testimony of Asaph, a psalm. Asaph was a singer and a leader of one of the temple choirs during the time of King David. You can refer to 1 Chronicles 15, 19 for that. His name is identified with other psalms, particularly Psalm 73 through 83. And many of the psalms attributed to him may say sons of Asaph. Meaning that the psalms were written in the style that Asaph would write. And this means not all psalms attributed to him or his sons were written during his lifetime, <clears throat> but they were written in the style that he wrote them in and in the same tradition and often sang by choirs. So many commentators believe historically that this psalm was written around the time that the northern ten tribes were taken into um, captivity by the Assyrians around 722 B.C. If you'll remember the history of Israel, after King David, Solomon, his son, became king. After Solomon, there was a bit of upheaval because Solomon, what he did is in marrying all the, the foreign wives that he married, he allowed idol worship to come into the nation of Israel. <clears throat> and at the end of his reign, the nation was so um, wrapped up in that, that Solomon's son, Rehoboam, was going to be harsh with the people. So the 10 northern tribes just took their luggage and went. They left. And they established themselves in a new kingdom in the north with a new capital, new places of worship. And, all, uh, and sadly enough, they took idolatry with them. And so God had judged them <clears throat> for that. The northern kingdom wasted away. They were governed by evil king after evil king. And they made unholy alliances with godless nations. And God handed them over in judgment to captivity, specifically to the Assyrian people. And for all intents and purposes, the northern kingdom was enslaved. Most were dispersed and they ceased to be as a nation. So all that's left is Judah in the south. <clears throat> and so this psalm can be considered a national lament by Judah. They see what's happened to their brothers in the north. And the psalmist wants the people to realize how seriously 
God takes his holiness and theirs as his people. And the nation of Israel, when it was established, was supposed to be uniting these 12 tribes. And they were supposed to be a light to the nations, pointing Gentiles towards the glory of God, which they did during the time of David and Solomon. But they had ceased to be that. And God was now using those enemies to bring judgment on his people. So the psalmist is begging God to restore his people, to turn them back to him and to restore the covenant blessings uh, of the people for the people. So that's the historical background. That's what we're looking at here today. So point one, God restores because of who he is. So the first three verses of this passage really paint for us a beautiful picture of the Lord God. The psalm begins with this plea Give ear, O shepherd of Israel. <clears throat> and you see that the theme of God as shepherd is a major theme. There's several pillars that kind of hold up the doctrine of God in the Old Testament. And we encounter two of them in this passage. One being that God is the great shepherd of the nation of Israel, of his people. And the other being that God is the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts. We encounter both of those here today. Among other things, those are two giant pillars that hold up the doctrine of God in the Old Testament. He's the one who supports the nation as their shepherd. He guides them. He protects them. And indeed, God has guided them. He has fed them from the goodness of his word. He has guided Israel like a flock. He's protected them. They are his sheep. Psalm 74, Psalm 100 are a couple of psalms you can look to where they praise God for being their shepherd in them. And he calls them his sheep. And God is a very able shepherd. He can be trusted to care for his people. Um, one commentator says this, that God as shepherd <clears throat> for them... And for us, it shouldn't be. His shepherd is not just a theological formulation. It's not just a doctrine, right? But it's a soul-steadying reminder of God's intentions towards his people. That God delights in leading and guiding and protecting and caring for his sheep. God's omnipotence is also of note in this verse. His all-powerful nature. The psalmist points his readers Towards where God is enthroned. Where does he sit as God shepherds his people? Where is he established himself? And the psalm says in this first verse, upon the cherubim, <clears throat> which is a reference to the mercy seat and the Ark of the Covenant, which is in the Holy of Holies in the temple. If you remember when God constructed that and he gave the directions for the Ark of the Covenant, he said that there's two cherubim, their wings are facing each other and it acts as a seat for the very presence of God in the temple. In the holiest of holies, where only the high priest could go once a year to offer sacrifice for the people. And this ark, what it symbolized was God's presence among his people. It stood as a stark reminder that God, by grace, had chosen of all the people in the, in the world to dwell among Israel. He had chosen them to dwell among, but they had taken his presence for granted. They had allowed idol worship to infiltrate the land. They had forgotten the blessing of being the people among whom the great I am, who had revealed himself to Moses, had chosen to dwell. But here in verse 1, the request is for God to shine forth, right? There's a lot of darkness. Dark clouds for a time are obscuring the brightness of the sun in Israel. They're seeing what's happening in the north. And the psalmist asked for the glory of God to burst forth and to shine on his people again. And they can call on God for restoration because of who he is, because of who he is. He's the shepherd. He's the all-powerful God enthroned upon the cherubim. He is glorious. And from this place of recognizing who God is, 
in his glory comes this request, right? We ask things of God because we know he is a God who's able to do anything above and beyond what we could possibly fathom. And so from this depth of knowing who God is in his glory and in his power, this request comes, restore us, O God, let your face shine that we might be saved. And this phrase, restore us, we ought not glance over it. It's repeated several times in this psalm for a reason. This psalm, this phrase, restore us in Hebrew, <clears throat> can also be translated, and some of you actually may have this in your Bibles as the, as the translation, turn us again, O oh God, turn us again. And so the phrase appears three times. It paints this picture of uh, one who is turned back, one who returns, or one who is brought back and restored. It's a beautiful phrase, and it carries a lot of meaning, not only for the people of Israel, but for us too. In restoring his people, God turns them towards him. That's what it means to be restored, is to stop looking at the things of this world and to look to him. The psalmist is saying that in order for the people to be restored, they must get a fresh glimpse of the glory of God. The people look north and they're troubled by what they see. Ephraim, Benjamin, Manasseh, which are all phrases synonymous with Israel in the north, the kingdom in the north, are being carried off into captivity. They're being dispersed. Cities are in ruins and the smoke of destruction is rising up from what is left. And the psalmist is pleading and lamenting for the people of Judah to have their eyes turned back to the Lord. He's calling for the people to have their gaze shifted from their own sin, shifted from the destruction that they see to the glory and the brightness of a God who can step in, who can rescue them, who can save them. And the psalmist knows that if the Lord's face shines on his people, they will be saved. The phrase, let your face shine, was first, uh, first spoken as a blessing by Aaron, the high priest of Israel, first high priest, Moses' brother. <clears throat> he spoke the blessing in Numbers 6.25. Pastor Mike has often recited that to us in a benediction as we leave. Uh, it recalls that God is gracious to those on whom his face shines on. That's what it means to be blessed. When you read in the Old Testament and Scripture, what does it mean to be blessed? It means to have the face of God shine on you. To have his face shine on you is a pledge of God's good favor. And it's the very definition of salvation, salvation to have the grace of God fall on you. It's such a beautiful picture of what God does for us in salvation, how he redirects our gaze. That's what repentance is. Repentance is turning Right? It's turning from what you once looked at for satisfaction, what you once pursued, and turning to God and claiming that he's the only one who can meet your needs. He's the only one who can save. God redirects our gaze so that we might see his glory and that his grace might fall on us. He turns us from our sin, which we love. Jesus says in John 3 when he's talking to Nicodemus that men love darkness. Right? We hate the light. We love darkness. So in his grace, he turns us from our sin that we love towards him so that we might see ourselves for who we are and him for who he is. He lifts our heads so we might gaze on him. And he doesn't just do this at salvation. We're his sheep. He is our shepherd. We get misguided and we lose our way and we often end up downcast, right? We spiritually cast our gaze towards the ground, but our gracious shepherd places his hand under our chins and he gently lifts our eyes towards him. 
That's the picture. That's, what it, that's what's being conveyed when it says that God is the lifter of our heads or when there's the request that God would turn our gaze towards him. <clears throat> My youngest son, Emmett, is a very sensitive young man. And when he knows he's in trouble, he just kind of falls to the ground and just looks down um, in shame, as he should. I'm just kidding. Um, but he, he looks down and it's almost like you just gotta, you just gotta put your hand under his little bitty chin and have him look at you so he can realize, hey, I'm not as mad as what you think I am right now. I'm still dad. I can still do something about this, right? And that's what God does for us when he places his hand under our chins when we're downcast and we look towards him and what a blessing and a privilege that is. And why is that? Well, it's because he delights to let the glory of his face shine on his people. It makes God happy to do that. He loves to bless them with the comfort of his presence and he's satisfied in being gracious to his sheep. So how, how is this possible though? We're called sheep for a reason in the Bible. Sheep often stray, make dumb decisions, don't listen. Whereas sheep, we don't deserve to bask in the glory of his face. We don't deserve to stand under the waterfall of his grace. So why does he, why does he allow this to look on him? I mean, that's an Old Testament Christian reading that phrase that God would shine his face on them. I mean, Moses, one of the most humble men in the Old Testament, the most humble, if you read the Bible, uh, asked God to see his glory and God refused. He says, you cannot look on my face and live, right? But yet here we see the request, God, let your face shine on us. How does that happen? Well, if what it means to be blessed is to have his face shine on you, then what it means to be cursed is for him to turn away from us as his people. And isn't that what we as straying sheep deserve? Well, the resounding answer should be yes, for the wages of sin is death. We do not deserve to have the face of God shine on us. That's why then why do we get to behold the beauty of his face? Why do we get to do that? Well, the answer is found in Galatians 3.13, which says, Paul says, he's reminding the church at Galatia, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. The psalmist in Psalm 80 knew, and we know, that all who have rebelled against their creator, which is all of us, all of us have done that. Deserve to have the face of God turned from us, right? To be under the cursings. Yet in grace, he turns his face towards his sheep because Christ became the curse for us, for them. That's what it means. Galatians 3, he redeemed us, what? From the curse of the law, from having God's face turned away from us by, how can that happen? By allowing Christ to become the curse for us. On the cross of Calvary. He can be gracious to his sheep because he was wrathful towards his son. And I really want to drive this point home because, again, the psalmist repeats it three times. Verse 3, verse 7, verse 19. And this is the beauty of the gospel. We serve a God who delights in restoring his people unto himself by revealing his glory to them. So we're going to revisit this theme a little bit later on. But just hang on that thought. How are we able to gaze upon the face of God well, because he allows us to, because Christ became a curse for us. So we'll come back to that later. So that's who God is. God restores us because of who he is. He's able, he's capable of doing it, and he delights in doing it. So now the second point. God restores us from who we are. So here's a stark reminder. Why do we need restored? 
Well, because of who we are. And we see a shift here in these verses, right? In verses 1 through 3, we saw a shepherd who delights in restoring his sheep. And now in these verses, we see the Lord of armies who's able to restore them. The writer of the Psalms pictures God not only as a providential provider for his people, but he's also an all-powerful general with all the might needed to command a to bring a rebellious people to their knees. Early 17th century English pastor and preacher and Puritan, Pastor Mike will be happy I'm quoting Puritans to you all, uh, Thomas Adams <clears throat> gave a famous sermon on Psalm uh, 80 verse 4 entitled God's Anger. In it, he states that, states that this title, Lord God of Hosts or Lord of Armies, is not properly a title of creation, but one of providence. It talks about his providential nature, how he's in charge of everything. All creatures have their existence from God as their maker, but so have they their order from him as their governor. And he goes on to say that this title refers not so much to their being as to their marshalling, not to their natural but militant estate. Not only as creatures do they owe him for their making, the heavens declare the glory of God, right? They praise him for who he is, but they're also soldiers for their managing, All right? God tells them what to do and they do it. He tells the storm to stop and it stops. He tells waves to stop and they stop. He tells demons to flee and they flee. Everything in nature responds to the Lord of armies. That all-powerful God who has the whole of the cosmos at his command to marshal and to go forth under his command, all the armies of heaven. <clears throat> hey, he's displeased with his people in this passage. That's a fearful thing. So much so that he's angry even with their prayers. And the psalmist, he wants to know, as I'm sure I would, how long... Will you be angry with them? Because he dreads the anger of the Lord. Why is God angry? Well, it would make sense to us if God was angry with, his, with the enemies of Israel. But why would he be angry with the prayers of his people? Could it be that the prayer life of the people revealed what was in their heart and it was that is what was displeasing to the Lord? Maybe they were saying the right things. Maybe they had the right posture. They came to the synagogue when they were supposed to. They observed the Sabbath. They tithed 10%, brought all their offerings. But where was their hearts in the middle of all of it? Why was God displeased? And I think in the New Testament, the letter of James that he wrote to the church dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, <clears throat> it can provide some answers for us in that. James chapter 4, verse 3, James says, You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly and you spend it on your passions. This means that when we pray self-centeredly, desiring things so that we might fulfill our own desires, we ask God for things so that we might live them out for our own satisfaction. They're self-centered, selfish prayers. God is displeased with such requests. That's what's going on with the people of God in this psalm. They're distracted by so many things. They're fearful of, God, of the enemies around them. They are turning to things they should not turn towards to save them when God is the only one who can. Matthew Henry, in his commentary on Psalm 80, says that they pray, but they do not wrestle in prayer. Their ends are not right, or there is some secret sin harbored and indulged in them. They do not lift up pure hands, but they lift up hands with wrath and doubting. We're kind of meant to feel the despair of this psalm here. It's a lament. The people are wrapped up in sin. Uh, and they're not calling out to God in repentance. And lest we think we're immune to this, we also do this. <clears throat> we do this too. 
Many in churches across the United States today may have walked an aisle or prayed a prayer. They come every week, they tithe, they go to Sunday school, some sit on committees, whatever the case may be, but their hearts are far from God. And the religion of nominalism is prevalent all around us. Nominalism means it's just Christianity in name only. There's no fruit of Christian repentance. There's no fruit of Christian compassion or that the Lord's at work. It's just Christian in name only. Just like Israel was following God in name only, doing what they thought what they were supposed to do where their hearts were in the wrong place. Some of us are like Israel. They had all the looks of devotion on the outside, but inside their heart was far from God. <clears throat> they spoke a lot about the compassion of God, I'm sure. And he is very compassionate. But they dare not hold their lives up to the light of God's holiness. And we do that as well. One author says that, says it like this. We live, talking about the church often, lives in a Christian fortress where everyone knows God, where everyone has walked an aisle and prayed a prayer. <clears throat> he goes on to say, friends often, and, and hear this because I think this is the most important part of what this particular commentator said. He said, friends often where nominalism thrives, where the worship of God in name only, where we don't have our hearts in the right place. We're just doing what we think we ought to do rather than doing it because it pleases God. He says, friends, often where nominalism thrives, the aspect of God's character that gets left aside is holiness. And this life of nominalism had left the people of Israel bitter. They'd felt God was not hearing them and they were afflicted. According to verse 5 in this passage, the picture here is of a people who have bread to eat. But instead of thanking God and turning towards him, the idea is they would break off a chunk of bread. They would dip it in wine. They would thank God for that. And they would consume the bread. But here the picture is of people who are bitterly ripping off the bread, dipping it in tears, making the bread bitter, dipping it in bitterness, and then consuming the bitter bread. I don't think anybody would be happy with that. Right? And they have their full measure of it. The tears of bitterness are overflowing. And furthermore, the people of Israel feel abandoned. In their sin, God had made them the scorn of the nations around them. Their enemies mocked them. The enemies laughed at them. Israel was known as the people of God. They were meant to be a light to the nations. But they were mired in their own sin and idolatry. Not calling out to God in repentance, but in bitterness and self-centeredness. <clears throat> we can get in this predicament sometimes. The best and the most loving thing that God can do for us is to be silent and to let that silence drive us to our knees. We ask God sometimes why he doesn't hear us. And sometimes his answer is because you're not looking at me. Because when we look to him, it doesn't help him hear us. No, he's, he can hear. But it definitely changes us and what we may be asking for. Which is what happens in verse 7. <clears throat> Again, the psalmist calls out to God to restore them. This is the plea of repentance. We confess our sin. We ask God to turn our face towards him. Jesus says it this way in John 3, 21, but whoever does what is true comes to the light. And when God's spirit does the work of revealing to us who we are in our sin, we have this natural reaction to turn away from that. <clears throat> but when we turn away from ourselves, we finally see the one that's worth gazing at. We're like Israel. We need a fresh glimpse of the glory of God. We need his face to shine on us that we might need to be, that we be saved <clears throat> and we need this restoration daily. It's not a one-time thing. We need it every day to turn to him. So this prayer of verses 3 and 7 and 19 should be our prayer every day. 
So the Lord of armies is also the good shepherd who pursues his own and restores them because they cannot, we cannot restore ourselves. So now we come to the means by which God restores his sheep. And I know what you're thinking. It's 1130 and we've only gotten through seven verses. So just hang tight. We're going to get through the rest of them. Verses 8 through 19, God restores us how? What's the means by which he does this? This really, this is the whole of scripture answers the question the same way. He does it through his son. The psalmist gives us a third picture of God in these verses. In verses 1 through 3, God was the shepherd of Israel. 4 through 7, he's the Lord of hosts. And now in these verses, he's the divine gardener. In recognition of who God is, their shepherd and their Lord of hosts, and in recognition of who they are, bitter and trapped in their own sin of rebellion, the psalmist now rewinds the story hundreds of years, almost a thousand years, back to when God first called them out of Egypt. They were a vine in enemy soil, in bondage in Egypt. They were far from the land that God had promised to Abraham. <clears throat> they were despised by the Egyptians. They were mistreated. But God raised up a leader among them, Moses, to lead them out. In addition to that, God was with them for 40 years of complaining, 40 years of groaning, 40 years of idolatry. Remember the golden calf that Aaron said just kind of popped out of the fire and they began to worship it? 40 years of all of that, right? God was with them by a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. He gave them his law. And in that desert of wandering of all, of all things, you know, they kept complaining to Moses, wanting to return to Egypt, that they were better off in Egypt. So a wonder of wonder, while they were in the desert <clears throat> for 40 years, God made a covenant with them. God covenanted himself with the people. He set his affection on them. And he called for them to be holy, to be different from the nations around them. <clears throat> and God said if they kept the covenant, they would always experience the covenant blessings of God. So not only did God deliver them out of slavery in Egypt, but he cleared the promised land of all enemy nations. And he established them in the land that he promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. <clears throat> and it says that they took root, deep root, and they filled the land. Verse 9. God established them and they flourished. <clears throat> they grew so much, actually, <clears throat> that metaphorically speaking, their shadow covered the mountain. Mountains usually are shadowing over everything else. But Israel had made them so great that their shadows covered the mountain. And their branches covered even the tallest Cedars. Israel grew until it reached from the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates River. God had blessed them <clears throat> and they had flourished and they expanded because they were rooted and grounded in God and the covenant that he had made with his people. Not because they were powerful or mighty, <clears throat> but because God was with them. He's the gardener who protects his vine. The other picture is that he builds a hedge around them to keep out the enemies and to keep out wild animals. But in verse 12, all of that comes crashing down. It's a screeching halt. Walls are broken down. The vine of Israel is left exposed. Boars and wild animals and enemies came in and they ravaged the vine. And Israel <clears throat> became a laughingstock. And the scorn of the nations around them. Ruin followed ruin. <clears throat> and to the psalmist, it seemed like God was doing nothing about it. You ever feel like that? That you're in a rut and that God doesn't hear their sin had given way to destruction and instruct, and that destruction had given way to this desperate feeling of forsakenness. The enemies of Israel had taken this once glorious and blessed nation and had left it in desolation. But the psalmist knew that, keep this in mind, this is what he knew. 
verse 16, the psalmist knew that one word of rebuke from the Lord God of hosts would put all those enemies to flight. One breath of his and it would be, they would be saved. The enemies of Israel, by one wave of God's hand, would be consumed by God's holy fire. So in verse 14, the psalmist asked the Lord to turn once again towards his people. It's a simple plea for the God of the universe to notice them. Look on us. Just one glimpse from him and they would all be saved. <clears throat> and if we're honest with ourselves, we've all been at some point where Israel was in that moment. We can identify with their hurt. We can identify with their feeling of desolation, <clears throat> their sense of being forsaken. We've all at some point been marred in sin. Some of us are even now in that. We know that feeling now because we're there. We feel like the hedges are down. We feel exposed. And that's, that's where sin leads. That's where sin gets us. This psalm is a lament. Again, it's a lament. It's supposed to draw the people into the sorrow of that moment. It's designed to help them feel this sense of helplessness before God. And they knew, they knew that unless God acted, unless God did something, they were ruined. <clears throat> we know that too. We feel like the psalmist did in that moment. And our plea should be much like theirs. Turn again, O God of hosts, look down from heaven and see have regard for this vine. Well, the good news is that God is our shepherd. He doesn't abandon his own. He may stand in silence for a period of time, but his silence is not indifference to the suffering of his people. Because you see, verse 17 changes everything. Because God has a son of man at his right hand whom he has made strong. And that changes everything. Charles Spurgeon, this is a messianic Psalm, by the way, too. It's a lament, but it's also a messianic psalm. It's a psalm that points us towards Jesus. Charles Spurgeon said that the Son of Man mentioned in verse 17, that he is thy true Benjamin, son of thy right hand. There is no doubt here an outlook to the Messiah for whom the believing Jews had learned to look as a savior in times of trouble. <clears throat> he goes on to say that this Son of Man is none other than Jesus through whom the world is to be delivered from the dominion of Satan. And the curse of sin. So if you hear nothing else that I've said so far today, and I know it's been hard because my voice is rather scratchy and screechy, but if you hear nothing else, Jesus is the true vine of Israel. John 15, 1, Jesus says, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. As the true vine, he calls his people to abide in him as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. In other words, to put it plainly, we're nothing without Jesus. This true vine also knows, by the way, what it feels like to be forsaken, like Israel does. If we re revisit that passage from Galatians 3.13 earlier, we see that Jesus knows exactly what it feels like to be an exposed vine. He knows what it feels like to have the gaze of the world look on him with scorn. He knows what it is to be exposed before the world in shame. He knows the anguish of bearing the silence of the Father. And when he became a curse for us, and he took the wrath of God for our sin on the cross. For that instant, for that moment, God's face turned away from Christ. The face of blessing, the face that would shine on him his whole life at that moment on the cross as he's dying for our sins, as he's substituting himself for us. He's 
receiving the full brunt of the wrath of God. And in that moment, he was a forsaken and exposed vine. He paid the penalty of death for us. He felt the full brunt of the covenant cursing of God fall on him. God's face turned away from his son. He knew the pain and the heartache of abandonment. And he did it for us, for his people, so that when we call on him, he can give us life when we call upon his name. So we return again to the plea of the psalmist. Restore us, O God, Lord of hosts. Let your face shine that we may be saved. More than anything, what the people needed was the Lord to turn their eyes towards him. Only then would they be restored. Only then would they be saved. It's no different for us today. We also need the Lord to turn our eyes towards him. How does he do that? Well, I think there's two places in scripture that we can look to to answer that question. How does God's face shine on us as his people today? How does he do that? Well, the first, <clears throat> Hebrews 1.3, which states that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. To behold Jesus is to behold the glory of God. This is also stated in the second passage Second, to look at 2 Corinthians 4, 6, which by the way, go home and read all of 2 Corinthians 4. It can add a lot of depth to this message, more than I have time for. But 2 Corinthians 4, 6 says, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts. So how does God shine on us? How does this face shine on us? He has shown in our hearts to give light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God has made his glory known through the person and the work of Christ. When the Holy Spirit turns our gaze towards God, we see Jesus. When he guides us through the pages of our Bibles, when we read our Bibles and we look through the pages of Scripture, we encounter and see Jesus. His light has shown in our hearts to give us the knowledge of Christ. So when we call out, restore us, O Lord God of hosts, God in grace directs our gaze to Calvary to a crucified and resurrected Savior. He directs our gaze to an empty tomb. And that's what we need in moments of desperation. That's what we need most. That's what we need to combat those feelings of abandonment when we feel forsaken. Our great shepherd reminds us that the cross and the empty tomb stands as proof. He has not left us exposed, nor has he left us in bondage to sin. One glimpse of him changes everything one word from the shepherd sends the wolves scattering. In Christ, God has looked down from heaven, has taken regard of our lowly estate, and he's shown the light of his glory in the face of Jesus Christ, that we might be saved. Our God is a shepherd who restores. So a few closing points of application, things to remember this morning as we close. Remember that God delights in restoring his people. It makes him happy. He delights in restoring his people. Also remember and recall what God has restored you from. We don't need to forget where we were when God found us. We don't ever need to forget where we were when God found us and by grace turned our face towards him and we were saved. Three, turn your gaze towards Jesus in worship. When we gather in corporate worship, when you worship privately in your own home, turn your gaze towards Jesus. Here's how in other ways we do it. So how is this done? In prayer and confession, daily confession, and through the study and the meditation of Scripture. And then the fourth thing, what should we do with this? Well, we want others to see that, right? We want others to see what we've seen in the face of Jesus. We want others to experience the blessing of God 
the joy of having him turn his face towards us in grace. So what do we do? Well, we share Christ with others so that they can see Jesus and so that they can be restored. It's our responsibility. The Bible says we're ambassadors of a message of reconciliation. And we're to go out and share this with the world. So if you're here today and you need restoration, if it's been a while and you feel like God has, has been silent, I pray today he would speak and that he would turn his, your face towards him. If you've never known Christ, if you're here today and you've never experienced the joy of having God's face shine on you, I pray today that you would experience the wonder and the grace and the awe of Jesus as Savior. And as we dismiss, I pray that um, also that God would teach us as his church not to take for granted the blessing of having God's face shine on us as his people.